Hello, and welcome to this episode of The War Pod, the official podcast of the Remote Warfare Programme. We're a London-based research initiative focusing on remote warfare, which is the trend in which states support local and regional forces on the front lines rather than deploying large numbers of their own troops. The Remote Warfare Programme is part of the Oxford Research Group, a peace and security think tank. I'm Emily Knowles, and today in this episode I'm going to be joined by my colleague Abigail Watson and guests Nick Marsh and Marie Sandness from Creo to talk about security force assistance on the African continent, as well as small state providers of security force assistance. Enjoy the show. So I guess one of the things that's been dominating news headlines over the past couple of years, fairly understandably, has been the anti-ISIS fight. And there's been a lot of attention in the think tank community at looking at how the international coalition hung together, and particularly how it worked with local forces who were doing the bulk of the frontline fighting in Iraq, Syria and Libya. We released three reports on this ourselves last year, looking at the legal, military and political implications of this shift towards fighting through largely local um, coalitions on the ground, which of course is is a huge change when you look at the the history of operations and particularly those operations in Iraq and Afghanistan that really characterised the early 2000s, which were large NATO-led operations. But one of the things that it's really important to acknowledge is that while this is a style of operation that has been applied to high intensity conflicts like the fight against ISIS, It's by no means the only um, form of operation that has used this sort of model. So, for example, on the African continent, um, there's been a huge amount of of effort by both national military partners like the UK, the US and France to work with local forces and build their capacity. So we were out in Kenya and Mali in September 2018 to sort of examine this um, this form of operation and how it looks in in what I guess it's fair to say is a, is a sort of lower intensity form of uh, form of operational environment. Yeah, and I think the the interesting thing about this context and why we thought it was important to conduct these interviews, and we also interviewed personnel rotating out of Ni- Nigeria and Somalia for the same purpose, was to try and understand the difference in the two strategic environments. So an argument that we heard around the anti-ISIS coalition was the sense of urgency created by ISIS who looked poised to take large swathes of land in the Middle East meant that the bandwidth for long-term strategic planning among decision makers just wasn't there or wasn't possible. So in the African continent, the strategic environment is very different. There's a reduced sense of urgency. And in that sense, there's a space for the UK's presence to be part of a long-term strategic plan in the region. And we see the, the, the desire to do so within the UK's own um, rhetoric around the region. So when Theresa May was in Africa in the summer last year, she stated the UK's enduring commitment to security assistance in the region. And the, the 2018 National Security Capability Review also stated that the UK's activities on the continent would expand and change. This is also part of a, a broader process where things like the creation of the NSC and the reform of the Conflict Stability and Security Fund has, in theory, 
created a better connection between the strategic level planning and the implementation of such strategies on the ground. So as these interviews and this field research was part of a broader project aimed at trying to understand the impact of this and trying to understand better the lessons for success and failure of remote warfare in this context as well. And here in, in all three countries, we found that while there had been considerable improvement, problems still remained. So for instance, our March 2019 briefing highlighted two initial findings that we'd found during this research, which was that there's still a disconnect between stated ambitions for Br the British contribution to security on the African continent and the activities being run to build partner capacity. And there still continues to be a short-term approach to partnerships that prioritises tactical activities over broader institutional support and reform that might address the underlying causes of conflict. But enough about the UK, <laughs> because it is true that when, when we look at the African continent, I mean, there's a huge amount of bilateral activity that goes on. So the UK has a big presence. Um, the US obviously has an even bigger presence. France is, is particularly key, especially in West Africa. But I think what's really important as well to acknowledge is that there's a huge number of small states providing security force assistance under the banner of organisations like the European Union, who is also running training missions in Mali and in Somalia. And to get a bit of a, a perspective from, from them about how it works from a small states perspective, we're really thrilled to be joined today by two researchers from PRIO, the Peace Research Institute Oslo, who've been running their own research programme on small states and security force assistance. So without further ado, I'm really keen to welcome them into the room with us. Yeah, hello to both of you from, from me. Um, it's really nice to catch up with you again. I know that you started this work and I was across at one of the workshops you ran in Oslo in December um, on security force assistance in, in fragile states. And I know that PRIO is sort of at the beginning of its own work on security uh, force assistance. So I'd be really interested um, to hear, you know, what, what were the main things that led you towards setting up this, this research stream? What sort of cases are you looking at? Yeah, thanks. Good question. Um, I mean, well, as you know, security assistance concerns basically providing training and equipment to allied or partner, mili partner militaries. Um, and we, we noticed that this was a big gap, at least in the contemporary research on conflict. Uh, and it was becoming more and more relevant. Um, if you think back into the 90s, 2000s, um, lots of people were looking at conflict economies, mining diamonds in order to buy weapons, pay recruits. Um, and you know, we'd noticed that in a lot of the most intense conflicts nowadays, you don't need to uh, pay for arms or equipment or training. Um, you know, there there are outside powers giving it to you. Um, so this was a you know a key dynamic in the contemporary conflicts that not many people had been looking at. And and does it link through to other research areas that that Prio have been been looking at before? Um, yes, I mean this is related to. Um, uh, a lot of things that Prio is looking at, um, we tend to focus on sort of peace and conflict issues in um, the developing world. Um, and specifically, we've got uh, colleagues looking at things like migration, um, EU security, um, 
military interventions uh, and security assistance is often how this intervention happens. Um, we're also looking at African armed forces, so it, it fits into a lot of what we're doing. So interesting, because I know that you've been doing some work on Mali, but are you looking at other case studies as well as part of this? Well, so, um, so specifically for this presentation and this paper that we did, um, I used a lot on um, used a lot on of research that I've done on Mali, uh, specific, specifically in pre preparation for my PhD um, on Mali. So, uh, so the current debates on on SFA um, that we present, presented here is is based a lot on on field work that we did in Mali in August, but also on on document analysis of that. Um, but we, like the broader SFA agenda here at PRIA, we're looking more generally at fragile states because security assistance is a common response to security issues in fragile states. We have a broader case selection as well, but uh, but for me, Mali is, is the main case. Yeah, um, and other things, other cases we're interested in at the moment um, include Afghanistan, Syria, uh, other, part, other countries in the Sahel region, um, uh, and uh, other countries in Africa in particular, uh, we have colleagues who are working on um, Ghana and Gambia. Oh, amazing. There's going to be like a, a huge amount of really interesting overlap with some of the, the countries that we've been looking at on this. And I'm really, I'm really keen to see how this research progresses. Is it too early to start speaking about emerging findings or have you got, have you got any sort of like conclusions that are coming out of the analysis that you've done so far? Um, uh, oh, wait. Um, yeah, uh, the, uh, I mean, one of the key things we, we keep finding on the contemporary uh, security assistance is how complex it is um, concerning the people providing it. Um, so you, you often have um, multinational coalitions uh, providing the personnel, um, or you've got missions organized by the European Union um, involving, you know, tens of different uh, nationalities uh, of people providing training. Um, uh, and we also see problems, um, you know, things like short-termism um, and there being numerous agendas. So uh, again, in, um, in North Africa, you've got counterinsurgency, counterterrorism, um, attempts to control migration um, and counter-trafficking going on. And we also see that the uh, the recipient site is very complex. So you have a lot of different actors receiving SFA in the same area. So, for instance, in Mali, we see that a lot of the uh, security assistance is going to, for instance, the Malian Armed Forces, the police, the gendarmerie, the border border control um, personnel, and and so on. And in addition, when we were in Mali in August, we met. Um, an organization that works on anti-poaching, so preserving elephants in the region, and they um, actually train um, they train rangers and armed forces to to combat the uh, the poachers. And the poachers are actually infiltrated by insurgencies and terrorist organizations. So what they're actually providing is counterinsurgency training. Mm -hmm. So this just adds to the complexity of the recipient side as well. Um, and we also see that the objectives or motivations for re receiving SFA is quite diverse and not necessarily um, similar to the objectives by the ones providing it. So individuals um, wanting to, to um, 
to do courses on, on, on security assistance as provided for them might, might simply be for adding to their CV and therefore enhancing their prospects in the job markets, really. Mm, super interesting. Um, at our conference at the end of February on conceptualising remote warfare, which we just spoke about, you talked about the historical context of modern security force assistance. Could you expand a little on why the Cold War is so interesting for modern providers of security assistance? Um, well, for me, there's a lot of continuity, um, uh, especially concerning the United States. Um, it built up uh, a huge security force assistance um, infrastructure during the Cold War. Um, and this kind of aid to friendly governments is, became one of the main ways that the US would try to keep its allies on side, keep um, you know wavering countries on side. Uh, and then you see this infrastructure still remain throughout the 1990s, uh, and then it's revived uh, you know, during the war on terror. Um, so a, an awful lot of what is going on now is not very much different to what was developed during the Cold War. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and now it becomes even more, uh, uh, more Cold War-like, if you, <laughs> for want of a better term, uh, in that we're seeing a return of um, sort of great power competition and use of proxies. And then if we're looking at the actions of countries like Russia or China um, competing for influence against the US, uh, you know, security assistance is one of the ways that they do it. It's really interesting that you mentioned proxy, and I know that you're on a panel with another presenter who is talking about proxy warfare. Um, how do you see, you know, we've had some interesting conversations within our own team, within our own reports about to what extent modern attempts to work through and with local partners is similar or dissimilar to kind of the Cold War proxy warfare. How, how do you feel about the term? Oh, uh, I mean, the term, uh, it, it, it is what you make of it. I mean, I know that some people object to it because they think that it um, suggests that the recipient of aid doesn't have agency. Uh, I mean, I don't think that at all because the uh, the recipient, the proxy, if you like, uh, always goes off and does what they want with it. And, you know, it, it's very it's always been incredibly difficult for the donor to actually control what the recipient does with it. Um, in in contrast to the Cold War, I mean, I think that the level of competition is still a lot less intense than it was then. Um, uh, in you know during the Cold War, you you know each side would have uh, would be trying to have influence everywhere in every country um, as much as possible. Whereas now you can see these great power competitions uh, taking part. You know. And we can put Saudi Arabia, for example, as another country which is using security assistance to, to gain influence. But uh, the the intensity of competition is much less, I think. It's interesting that you, you, you're starting to draw out the key similarities and differences between the two periods. I wonder if you've noticed any more that in, in your initial findings. I think that I think that despite like there are some key differences such as now um, the context of security assistance is much found within the war on terror or the war on narcotics or insurgencies Um, but we do see a lot of similarities and I think some of the key ones um, are the objectives for providing security assistance the fact that it's presented as a cheap and low-cost activity 
uh, and and one of the problems that's also reoccurring is the fact that you can't really control the recipient of assistance uh, of the security assistance and and control what the recipient will actually do after receiving this assistance and like nick nick mentioned there is a renewal of this global power competition between the us and russia or us and china um and and um but no, another issue that's also reoccurring or, or 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 has been continuing is the fact that security assistance is see has a low status for the military providing it because it's not um security assistance is not necessarily helping your career in any way um but it's still an activity that militaries turn to quite a lot Mm, yeah, it, it's it's certainly one of the things that we're grappling with now when we look at the, the British armed forces and kind of do you focus on major war fighting? To what extent is security force assistance something that armies want to be doing? Mm. And I'm really curious as to, because you identified a couple of the lessons learned and kind of made the point in your presentation in, in February that, you know, it seems like we end up picking up the same sort of lessons, the, the same sort of problems, as you mentioned, that complexity, divergence in, in objectives, um, throughout history when it comes to working with partner forces. Um, could you talk a little bit more through those, those kind of lessons and, and to what extent we seem to be highlighting the same sorts of things when yeah. we're looking at Cold War now? Yeah, certainly. Um, I mean, I think a, a key, um, uh, if you like, lesson which uh, people were talking about very explicitly in the early 1960s and you now see exactly the same criticisms is the the sense to which the US especially but also other developed countries they their personnel attempt to go in and set up a mirror of their own armed forces so you you've got attempts to um uh, provide equipment to people in recipient countries that they just can't use they don't have the skills um that uh you're trying to set up organizational structures which just don't work in an extremely fragile state which doesn't have um you know very obvious transparent hierarchical state authority um and so you you get enormous problems with people with uh um very unrealistic expectations and very little training or knowledge turning up to places like afghanistan or somalia or mali and making a lot of mistakes um and as as mary was saying um a lot of the explanation for this i think is that because it's seen as a cheap low risk uh, activity it doesn't have a, a high degree of status or or, or salience um you know, armed forces and politicians who send them out really are not putting in the amount of time and resources necessary to do it properly. Mm, and that's so interesting. I wonder whether you have you had a look at recommendations for the for the militaries that are performing this sort of activity, like in terms of, you know, what what does this say about their ability to identify and learn lessons? And is it just a case that this is because this is a low priority activity, they're not really putting that effort in, or could I think, it be a broader problem with, with learning lessons in the armed forces? I think so. What we've found for at least smaller states, such as Norway, is that there isn't really a doctrine on security assistance. Mm -hmm. And this is problematic for the communication going from the political level and down to soldiers on ground and, and the other direction as well, because, because communication of what you're supposed to do and why you're supposed to do it becomes very 
difficult, I think. Um, and when it comes to um, if militaries are capable of of um, of learning <laughs> the lessons that's been done before, I think that I'm not really sure if this is a question for the military or for the politicians really is it is it a lack of learning or is it lack of interest in interest in the actual lessons that you have done before yeah and yeah and in, in addition to that um one thing that is very important is not just that people learn lessons they write reports they write make powerpoints um but there needs to be uh sort of a system by which the right people actually read those reports. Um, it, it's very easy to think, well, job done, I've written a report, um, it gets filed somewhere and nobody uh, nobody takes note of it. So there has to be a, a sort of organizational culture which makes it necessary to actually look at what has been learned. I think that's a really interesting point and it was something that we also highlighted in our reports last year, particularly around um, how soldiers speak to politicians and help them understand the particular challenges posed by this type of, of warfare. So I think it's really helpful that you're also finding some of the, the similar similar challenges. Do you do you then see the the recommendations for the military and as politicians as two parallel things or do you see them as uh, connected? Are there specific ones that politicians need to take on board and the military need to take on board, or is it part of that broader organisational change? Um, yeah, I, I mean, I, I think most of the problems uh, that we've seen um, have their sort of causes at the uh, policy level rather than within the military. Um, um, and, you know, then we, we're looking at things like uh, extreme short-termism, um, but uh, that you know, politicians will set up a security assistance mission, but um, it may have a mandate that runs for a year or two years. Um, it's got a one-year budgeting cycle. Um, you you then have personnel who are deployed for sometimes you know less than six months. Um, and again, so the the short termism I think is the the major problem. Um, if you were to have, say, a 10-year perspective, 10-year planning cycle, 10-year budget, if that was possible, and then be able to find people who are willing to be located in a country for, you know, several years, um, that would mean that those people could actually learn about the recipients of the assistance, learn about the local culture, the local governance structures, and be much more effective. Um, but when you've got this very short-term mission cycle with people constantly being moved in and out, it's very difficult to actually adapt and learn to the environment. That's really interesting. I wonder whether, from the perspective of small states, whether that would be possible then, because because what you're talking about is quite a, a kind of consistent, very, well, not necessarily large scale, but at least it would mean committing, you know, a sensible number of forces for you know, a decade or so to a particular country, which I guess, you know, for someone the size of the United States, you might see how they could dedicate um, a brigade or at least a battalion of some sort to that. But maybe for, for, does this have particular implications for how we think about how small states provide security force assistance? And and maybe it means doing more things through coalition? Yeah, certainly. Um, and it, it's much more difficult for small states because most of the time they are providing security assistance as part of a coalition. 
um, and that coalition is being led by a much you know larger entity, you know, US or the European Union, for example. Um, so it's very difficult for a small state to actually decide on things like uh, mandates of the whole mission or the planning cycle. Um, having said that, Norway has had some success. Um, it uh, for a long time it's been training um, unit in Afghanistan. And the Norwegian approach was to work with a single unit and then uh, have the same people go out on multiple tours. So you could have some, uh, a Norwegian would go out uh, on a mission there and then they'd come back maybe a year later. And then, you know, after that, they'd come back again. And that means that you actually get to accrue those, uh, that cultural knowledge, you get to build the relationships. Um, and so you, you can avoid this uh, short-termism, um, you know, by thinking creatively. But a, a lot of countries don't don't do that. They just rotate people in and out. Well, on that optimistic note, <laughs> thank you so much for speaking to us. This has been really interesting, especially because it's so useful for us who work on contemporary campaigns to have someone that's making the link between the two. I think it shows that none of this is new. And if we if we understand the lessons of the past, then we might also stop ourselves repeating some of the same mistakes. So thank you very much for speaking with us. Thanks very thank much. Thank you. And thank you to all of our listeners for tuning in. We hope you enjoyed the discussion as much as we did. For those who want to read in more depth about the topics that we covered, we're going to put links to any research or publications that we've mentioned in the episode notes. If you want to stay up to date with the Remote Warfare Programme and the Oxford Research Group's work, please subscribe to our newsletter by clicking on the button at the top of the page. You can also follow us on Twitter. Our handles are at orginfo and at remote underscore warfare. You can listen to all previous episodes of our podcast free of charge by following the link at the top of the page. We look forward to you joining us soon.